This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome to Money and Markets, the podcast that covers all the essential news and views on personal finance and investing matters. I'm Dan from Shares Magazine and AJ Bell, and with me is Laith from AJ Bell. Hi there. So this week, we'll be diving into the world of Tesla and Bitcoin, looking at why investors gave the thumbs down to GlaxoSmithKline and Ocado's latest updates, and explaining why the FTSE 100 is treading water. Yeah, we're also going to be looking into the world of annuities. Uh, And this week's special guest is going to be Madeline Wright. She's going to be explaining her journey from joining the the asset manager Linsel Train, almost straight out of university, through to now helping to run some of the most popular funds uh, in the UK. But before we get to all that, as usual, let's have a quick whiz around the markets. Dan, can you give us an update? What's been going on the last week or so? Well, some very interesting movements um, on on the global sort of stock market basis. But on, in the UK, it's probably worth starting with that. The FTSE 100 did have a brilliant start to 2021, but now it seems to be drifting a bit. And this is all principally down to um, continuing gains for sterling. So um, the FTSE 100, about three quarters of its constituents uh, earn money overseas. So um the, the the sort of the, the relative value of these overseas earnings when they are converted back into sterling does have an impact on share prices. So sterling's at about 138 versus the US dollar. And we haven't really seen these levels since April 2018. So um, this is really notable strength in the pound. And, and I guess that sort of reflects the UK's very good progress on the vaccine rollout and also the Bank of England um, seems to be retreating from the idea of negative interest rates. And the, and the market took that very strongly on the recent update from the Bank of England. And there's also, there is some dollar weakness anyway, because people are looking at the potential very large stimulus package that could be coming soon from the US. Um, so, I mean, all, all that sort of adds up to um, slight bit of frustration if you say if you've got your money tied up in a, in a FTSE, 100, FTSE 100 tracker fund. But, um, you know, I think if you actually look at the, the records that are being set by US uh, and Asian stocks, you might get a bit of better understanding that actually investors generally are upbeat. And they certainly see the COVID ref, uh, relief package that's being planned by the Biden administration as essentially drawing the focus away from what's been sort of a miserable winter to perhaps we're looking at spring or more likely a sort of summer of recovery from the pandemic. So the the MSCI All Countries World Index has just hit a record high, and that is typically used as a benchmark by lots of different global funds. So, um, you know, this this is sort of really good, positive news for investors, particularly if you've got a diversified portfolio, you've got exposure to lots of different countries around the world. Um, hopefully it means that your your portfolio portfolio is doing quite well. So, I mean, oil prices as well have just hit $60. They haven't been that high for a very long time as well. So it, generally, I think it's not, a, not really a bad time at all to be an investor. Yeah, I was quite, I was quite interested actually, Dan, by what happened with the, the Bank of England. Um, because you're you're absolutely right. The markets do seem to have priced in, um, you know, the the kind of negative rates being taken off the table. But strangely, at the same time, the Bank of England said, um, you know, it wants to prepare 
commercial banks for negative interest rates potentially for, you know within six months so there were a couple of mixed messages there from the bank of england too yeah so on to individual stocks over the last week there's been um continuation of some really big names reporting and updating what they're doing and on the uk market we've had uh, a couple of very big names and disappointing the market actually so some people might be a bit surprised so first up is glaxo smith klein its share price um has been struggling for quite a while and and the market certainly didn't like its latest update which essentially pushed out any meaningful improvement in revenue and profit to 2022 because the company is investing in its drug pipeline and also it's seen um, it's very successful vaccine sort of business with stuff like uh, treatments for shingles it's actually been impacted by what's going on with vaccinations for covid getting priority so actually i think you know the business is is seeing good progress and, and next year we're going to see a separation of its consumer healthcare division but but at that point we're potentially going to see changes to its dividend policy which again some investors might take that to mean that you know, they're going to be less generous dividend yield on the stock now the other one that had a similar reaction was Ocado came out with some you know pretty decent numbers um what caught my eye was the the, the pre-tax loss for the business is narrowing considerably versus a year ago but the share price fell on the news because again it's sort of flagging it's going to have to spend more money um investing in its business but what it's really doing is just setting itself up for for you know potentially very large future gains here this is the year where we're going to see quite a few of its overseas customers that have signed up to use its technology essentially all its robots that run warehouses they're going to start to go live so i mean this is incredibly important year ahead um for for the company but i think you know the market just seemed to be very short term just looking at this these sort of guidance for for a step up in investment um and not liking it but i guess the, the shares trade on a very high earnings multiple so um the slightest bit of what could be deemed to be bad news could put pressure on the stock but you know the, the, the message and the sort of the strategy, the, the opportunities for the business haven't changed at all. Well, in fact, they probably strengthened with the pandemic. More people are getting used to ordering online. And if you're a grocery business and you haven't got a top-notch um, online platform, you're definitely going to be considering now about how you might want to um, strengthen that proposition. And of course, that's Ocado is one of the, the key players providing technology in this space. So let, let, let's move on to Bitcoin. So, um, there's a lot going on there. I mean, this the, the share the price of it. The price of uh, Bitcoin reached um, just over forty six thousand uh, dollars, which is amazing considering it was just under twenty thousand dollars just for Christmas. So, um, what's been driving this is Tesla, the electric car maker, um, came out and said it's it's invested one and a half billion dollars of its reserves in Bitcoin, uh, and it says it also wants to accept the cryptocurrency is payment in the future for its vehicles. So, I mean, this is following on from several big institutional investors, uh, big companies sort of signaling that they, they are taking Bitcoin very seriously. I mean, last year we had PayPal users um, in the US were guided that they can buy, sell and hold cryptocurrencies directly through their PayPal account. Um, the investment company Ruffer more recently said it's, put some of its money into into bitcoin 
Um, it was looking at gold inflation linked bonds are uh, sort of the, the, the classic safe havens, but it wants to diversify its reserves by also putting it into to Bitcoin. So really, we got lots of sort of much more interest. It started out by being something for um, retail investors, perhaps the general public to be looking at. Now institutions are taking it much more seriously. And of course, this is pointing towards um, potential hike in the price. So, I mean, and Leith, I know that you've been looking at um, some of the habits of people who buy Bitcoin. What, what's, what sort of interesting stuff have you found? Yeah, well, I mean, we actually did a consumer survey um, um, recently of people who own, well, cryptocurrency, not just Bitcoin, predominantly Bitcoin, but, but cryptocurrency more generally, um, just to see kind of, you know, why they bought it, uh, what other kind of savings and investments that they hold. I think there are a couple of slightly concerning um, findings that came out came out of that survey. Um, one was, you know, quite how many people are investing in Bitcoin without having really any other savings or the kind of basic building blocks of, you know, a normal financial plan, things like pensions and ISAs. So it's a pretty big survey, about a thousand um, um, cryptocurrency investors. Six out of 10 of them said that they don't have an ISA. Um, about half didn't have a, a pension, um, um, and quite quite a quite a few um, about fifty percent said they didn't have a savings account either. So that kind of paints a picture of, of people, you know, maybe of a certain generation, maybe leapfrogging traditional normal things to do to build up money and trying to get rich quick off Bitcoin, which probably, given the price, is where it has is at the moment. They've probably done quite well, but. Uh, there's obviously a potential downside as well. And, and that was probably the second thing that was concerning about uh, some of the responses that we got was that um, quite a few of them are, 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 you know, saying that they're they're kind of not willing to lose any of their investment. About 30% of people said that they weren't willing to lose any of the money that they've invested in cryptocurrencies, which, you know, hopefully that will be the case, but it might not. Um, and there's, you know, given the volatility of these things and the unpredictability of such a new asset class, there is a huge downside risk. And so it's a little bit concerning that they're not um, not kind of cognizant uh, of that at, at the moment. So, um, you know, there are um, there are, you know, you know, there are some people who, you know, our survey showed were probably, you know, using cryptocurrency fairly responsibly in inverted commas in that you know they they were doing it with a small part of their portfolio and were saying yeah we've we'd be willing to lose all of it which is you know if you look back to the end of last um well the beginning of this year sorry the fca said you know if, if you're investing in this, this area you should be willing to lose all, all the money you're putting in there uh but those people who were kind of you know going in as you, as you might say with their eyes wide open were, were probably the exception rather than rather than the rule in this case yeah i mean i, I was having a quick look on youtube um, at the weekend, um, I thought I'd just see what sort of videos there are on Bitcoin. And my goodness, everything about it was sort of uh, bling, gold chains, jewellery, you know, a real get-rich-quick feel to it. I and mean, it's all, so many people have um, seem to be sort of publishing videos, just sort of making these bold predictions of where the Bitcoin price will be. And, and it's sort of... I thought if anyone's quite serious, uh, really interested about putting some money into this cryptocurrency, it, it, it sends the wrong message. It's sort of this get rich quick sort of thing. But 
Um, so I think if you are interested in it um, and want to learn more, I'd point you in the direction of um, websites of Waverton and Capital Gearing. So if you just, just do a Google search for Waverton Bitcoin or Capital Gearing Bitcoin, they've got each you – know, Waverton's got a, a very interesting document which explains why – um, you know, th- there are attractions in, in investing in Bitcoin and Capital Gearing talks about why, um, it, you know, the, the opposite of essentially, you know, why it's looked at it and in sort of the, some of the doubts it has. And I think it's much more sensible reading there. Um, I think that, you know, we are going to see um, much more interest in this as more um, companies, particularly someone like Tesla gets involved, it will naturally draw in more people to take it um, much more seriously. So, you know, just before we, we finished on Tesla, there was a couple of points which I thought was worth touching on on the podcast. One was that um, it was flagged by an article in the Times. Um, they went to talk to um, the asset manager, Bailey Gifford, who's one of the biggest shareholders in Tesla. Um, just sort of get their, their views or, you know, what do you think about this this company in which you have a lot of money invested in suddenly spending $1.5 billion on Bitcoin when actually it's meant to be making electric cars? Um, and they took sort of a, quite a relaxed attitude so far, but sort of indicated that um, if it's going to be sort of a regular occurrence, that uh, it might need to have um, some sort of agreement about the, the maximum that the company can invest in. Um, and the other thing was there was an article in the FT which sort of flagged uh, that they, they found on the social media network Reddit a, a post from about a month ago um, that claimed to be from someone who worked for Tesla, who basically says, um, my employer is currently in the middle of buying millions of pounds of Bitcoin or millions of dollars of it. Um, you know, imagine if this this information got out into the market. And of course, by by making that post, it clearly was, wasn't it? So um <laughs> Well, well, well um, Papa Musk himself, as the, the kind of Reddit uh, traders were calling him, um, actually kind of um, post, on, on his Twitter feed, actually halfway through January, I believe, kind of actually put some, you know, kind of hashtag Bitcoin on there, which kind of sent the, the, the price crazy for a couple of hours as well. And I read that the SEC are looking into that as well. Yeah. Um, and you know yeah. it's interesting that you know you know Bailey Gifford looking at it as well because like you say this is this is an electric car company why is it buying Bitcoin you know Ruffer the the investment trust is an investment company it invests in stuff it makes sense that if it wants to invest in an asset class it can why is an electric car company buying one point five you know billion pounds a billion dollars worth of, of Bitcoin it it doesn't make a huge amount of sense strategy wise so I can see why investors as well might be sort of scratching their heads and saying. Well, hang on a minute. How you know this is kind of a, almost an investment banking activity that you're talking about here, and you're taking on quite a bit of risk as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, they need to see the proof of whether this person at Reddit was, um, you know, was actually who they said he was, or whether it's just like a, a Simpsons moment where you know every episode of Simpsons seems to have predicted the future. Maybe this is someone just got lucky by guessing that, um, that Tesla might go down this direction. But yeah, you know, if it was, this is that's got to be inside information against market rules to disclose that in that way so yeah i, I think we'll probably have uh, lots of people sort of looking very closely at what's what's going on um so let's move on to our next topic so one of the big challenges for investors in later life is how to find a decent income during retirement so historically people would have bought an annuity to get a guaranteed income but big changes to pension rules about six years ago saw annuities fall out of favor um, I think people just saw the opportunity now that they could stay invested in the market. So 
it's a bit peculiar that they fall out of favour because actually annuities are still relevant to lots of people. So, Laith, can you put this situation into perspective and sort of give us some idea about whether annuities are here to stay or, or they're going to disappear completely? Yeah, I mean, probably the first thing to say is that you probably haven't ever seen a Bling video on YouTube about annuities. I can pretty much say that for sure. <laughs> um, so um, it's probably worth just explaining what an annuity is because there are probably plenty of people who... Um, who maybe don't know, um, it's basically a um, an insurance product. So um, they're very, very, in inverted commas, popular, um, you know, before pension freedom, largely because people were herded towards them when they finished building up their pension. So the idea is that you've built up your pension, you've hit retirement age, typically, let's say 65. You then go to an insurance company with your, say, £100,000 um, pension pot and you say can you please turn this into an annual income for me and the insurance company uh, says okay we've got hundred thousand pounds we will give you x amount of income every year for the rest of your life um, and um, you, you know that, that you, you essentially give up the the access to your capital you don't get any kind of particular investment returns or anything like that you literally just get an income stream that is what the annuity is it is a series of payments until you die um it's they're actually one of the oldest financial products um around um they go back actually to the the 17th century when they were called tontines um and you know they're provided by insurance companies and like you say uh, dan pensions freedom uh, back in 2015 was a bit of a watershed moment for uh, for annuities because people no longer kind of were, were were guided towards annuities as a way to to take their pension income they could pretty much do with what they want with their pension so you can draw it out as cash you can invest it and draw an income uh, and so you know we have seen you know a a, a big decline in 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 their popularity um, in terms of you know how much money is is going into them, uh, I think that's also a, a bit to do with what's what's happened to annuity rates. So um, the way that annuities work um, is that um, the insurer basically invests in fixed income, normally government bonds and corporate bonds, um, in order to generate an investment return to provide that annual income to people. And so the annuity rates that they provide are pegged to, to, to bond yields. And we know what's happened to them over the last 12 years, ever since you know the Bank of England has been um, uh, engaged in quantitative easing and loose monetary policy. So you know your typical rate now is about um, 4.5%. So if you're 65, you go along to, you know, to an insurance company with £100,000, say, and they will give you £4,500 a year for life, um, which actually isn't that great a deal. Because if you think about what you can get probably for an investment portfolio, maybe 3 to 4.5% income a year, it's going to be variable, yes, but then you've still got the capital as well. So that's 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 been an issue. I mean, I think if you look back to before the financial crisis, annuity rates were about seven seven percent. So for you know each hundred thousand pounds you take into insurance company, you get an, a, an income for life of seven thousand pounds. So um, you know there's obviously been a, a very big drop in um, in the income that you can get, and that combined with the pensions freedom has probably put a bit of a uh, um, a, a dampener, well, quite a lot of a dampener on, on annuity sales, 
Um, not sure it's a final nail in the in the coffin, Dan. Uh, like I say, they've been around for hundreds of years, hundreds of years, and, and you know they still fulfill a, an important an important function. Um, but they're they're kind of definitely not the flavour of the moment. I think it's fair to say. Yeah. Do, do you think it's also that? Um, the idea of people thinking more about um, passing on wealth to their family when they die. Obviously, if you take it out of annuity, when when you die, that's it. That's the end of the money, isn't it? So, but with a pension, if there's anything left in the pot when you die, you can then pass that on. I wonder if you thought that that was a a key consideration for people, and actually has had a you know a negative effect on annuity sales. Yeah, I think I think massively. Um, you know, I, I have a confession to make, my Dan. I actually used to work in pensions, um, so <laughs> you know, I know that you know when people were buying annuities, you know, back in the day, so sort of two thousand to two thousand ten, they never really liked buying annuities because of just that fact. It was you know I've totally given up my capital, and the way that annuities work is that you know if you you know if you say you know you buy an annuity. And, you know, unfortunately, you die within two years, the money's all gone. Um, you know, people really didn't like that. They probably underestimate the flip side of that equation, which is that, you know, if you're going in 35 years time, you know, if you, if you, you know, you're 65 and you hit 100, that annuity is still paying out to you. Um um, and that that is kind of a you know a, a val you know a valuable part of, of what an annuity does, and, and that's the other thing that's kind of factored into annuity rates is is mortality, um, and you know over the last twenty years or so, you know the you know the the kind of boffins at the insurance companies have been gradually ratcheting up ratcheting up their expectations of of life expectancy because you know people are generally speaking living longer. Um, and that's also had an impact on annuity rates. So, you know, there are still reasons to, 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 to buy an annuity. I think it gives you a security in, in terms of the income that you've got. Um, it's good if you th- if you think you're one of those people who's going to live a long time. You know, F- Prince Philip would have had a great amount of money from an annuity if he'd bought one when he's 65. <laughs> so if you think if you think you're going to live for a long time, then you, you get you get a, a good deal out of them. It, there, you can also get an uplift as well. If you've got any health issues, now they, they can be fairly low level health issues. So something like being a smoker, you know, if you declare that and a lot of people don't on annuity applications declare that they're a smoker because they think, oh, I don't want to I don't want to say anything that's going to, you know, uh, mean I don't I get a lower income. But but strangely, if you say you're a smoker, you, you might actually get a higher income normally, you know, probably in the region of 10 percent if you're buying an annuity, you know, other other low, fairly low level health conditions that, that might get taken into account, things like diabetes and uh, high blood pre- pressure or c- cholesterol. So, you know, for all of those reasons, you might consider taking an annuity. You can always mix and match as well with an investment portfolio. So it's not like I have to take an annuity or I have to invest. You can say, well, I'll take a bit of an annuity to get a bit of a guaranteed income, and then maybe I can you know, invest the rest so that I know at least I'm going to get this amount come what may, even if my investments don't perform as well as I expect. So I think they still do have a role to play in that kind of um, you know retirement conversation but you know the, i think the real killer at the moment is bond deals being where they are and just offering a really miserable return to, to bond investors and that includes people who are buying an annuity i'm afraid brilliant thanks thanks Leif. that's great so finally we're just really pleased to have the opportunity now to share the story Someone rising up in the ranks of fund management and has learnt from two of the most respected names in the industry. 
So Madeline Wright works for Linzel Train, the fund business set up by fund managers Nick Train and Michael Linzel. She's involved with such funds and investment trusts as Finsbury Growth and Income and Linzel Train UK Equity Fund. So Madeline joined the business in November 2012 as a fund manager's assistant and was promoted to deputy portfolio manager in March 2019. Uh, so, Madeline, thank you so much for joining us on this week's podcast. We do appreciate you sparing the time to share your experiences in the world of investing. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Brilliant. Well, let's start with the beginning of your career. How did you actually get to join Linzel Train? So I studied English literature at university, which keeps lots of doors open, but also doesn't really prepare you for any career in particular. And after university, I was actually lucky enough to receive a scholarship to go to Japan to study Japanese. Nothing to do with a degree, just just a scholarship. That seemed like a fantastic way to put off looking for a job for a year. And then when I came back to the UK, I didn't have any special desire to work in asset management or, or even finance. But what I wanted was an interesting job, whatever that might be. I love research, so I was looking for something along those lines. And my attention was definitely caught by the mention of research on on the Linzel Train job advertisement. It looked interesting, so I put in an application. I ended up having two interviews, both with Nick and Michael themselves, before I was offered the job. And I would say I had a few other interviews for various other companies at the time, And the Linzel Train interviews stood out as being by far the most thought-provoking. They were a bit like the interviews I'd had for for Oxford. This, I don't know if you'd call it an untypical background in in languages and literature. Maybe it's untypical for for the industry as a whole. It's actually quite typical at Linzel Train. We've got two zoologists, two historians and two English lit graduates on the investment team. This this is quite a deliberate choice. I know Nick and Michael have, have been clear. They've wanted to seek a variety of backgrounds and they wanted to seek a variety of viewpoints. And I think I think that's a big part of, of the team makeup. Okay, so once once you sort of settled in at Linzel Trade, what, what sort of projects did you do in sort of the first few years you were there? Hmm. Well, there was no Linzel Train graduate scheme. I will say that. The onus was, still is really, very much on me to direct my own work and and to direct the way I got to grips with the way things are done here. It's very much part of the culture at Linzel Train. Everyone, Nick and Michael, have added to the team uh, natural self-directors. I think it's, it's a big way that we work here. So the first thing to do in, as you say, those first couple of years was to get to know all the companies we invest in or, or have on our watch list. We've got small portfolios. We've got a maximum of 30 companies around that in each one. So it's important to know each of those companies really, really well. So this this was a huge undertaking to, to dig into all of those and indeed to dig into all of the companies on, on the watch list. I figured out quite quickly that, that I enjoy having a big ongoing research project, looking at a particular industry or, or a particular space. So I've organised my work to do one of these per year ever, ever since I joined. Back in 2013, my first was looking at transactions in the spirits industry, spirits being a big area of focus for us. I had to pass the IMC exam, 
having done that, that allowed me to, to trade and interact with the market. At that point, I began to help with day-to-day trading in the portfolios. Okay, so what? And, and now, I mean, would your sort of typical day now would it be um, a bit different? I mean, a sort of, would I be right in saying that you're you're spending a lot of time talking to companies now? But perhaps when you first joined, were you sort of um, allowed to go with sort of the, the fund managers along to sort of meetings and stuff? I've been allowed to sit in meetings with with the investee companies from the very start. It's been great, actually, from from my very first week to sit in a meeting with companies, with Nick and Michael, and and learn from them right on the job. That was fantastic. But you're right, the the, the job has changed a bit, a bit, uh, as I've I've been given more more freedom to to do more things. So maybe if I take you through a, a typical day... First thing I do, first thing in the morning is look at the portfolios, check for news about any of our names, any of our watch list companies. So I'm deputy portfolio manager across all funds, but on a day-to-day basis, I'm primarily responsible for assisting Nick with the UK accounts. So my next daily job would be to keep on top of cash flows, whether that's in or out, either invest the money in or make sure we raise cash to being withdrawn, depending on what's happening on, on that particular day. The rest of the day, there's not any particular shape. Certainly some of it is spent reading. Some of it is spent talking to investee companies, sometimes possible investee companies, typing the notes up, circulating them, discussing that with, with the team if there's anything particularly pertinent that's come out of it. So as I said earlier, I do like to have a big ongoing project. And and most recently, this was a survey of branded packaged food companies. I'm feeling inspired from time to time. I write investment insights, which are circulated to our mailing list and available on our website. And maybe the biggest change more recently is that more and more these days, I have contact with Linzel Train's clients. So that's explaining our strategy, updating them on performance, giving them an insight into how we work and what we do. Okay, so Lentil Train seems a bit unusual compared to a lot of other fund groups who might be sort of managing billions of pounds of assets. Um, in, in the company, doesn't really employ many people. So I'm just wondering what the environment's like in the office because I, I know that I, I, I visit lots of companies and, and fund managers' offices and they're all, all very nice um fancy boardroom, nice paintings. And you know, go to somewhere like Fundsmith, it's full of all the consumer books that they uh, consumer products that they invest in but Linzel Train's office it, it was was just full of books and I noticed when Nick Train was doing a, a webinar presumably from home he, he seemed to have books everywhere is it like a, a a very quiet atmosphere with sort of Nick reading every day and, and everyone else sort of encouraged to heads down to to learn new things yeah that's right it's nice and quiet deliberately so definitely I know that Nick and Michael have said on a couple of occasions that they wanted to create a company with a quiet and contemplative sort of environment. I think they've definitely achieved this. Mentioning the reading, that's definitely right as well. It's it's perfectly acceptable at Linzel Train to spend large portions of the day reading articles, news stories or, or books. And the library in the office is also quite something. I think it's a very particular kind of environment. I think the sort of people who, who get on here have been carefully chosen. I think we all work well under our own steam, as I said earlier. It's not to say we don't discuss things with each other, though. 
<clears throat> in the office, we've got open plan desks. Again, a very deliberate choice. I've sat next to, right next to Nick from the very, very first day I joined. And that that encourages people to kind of share their thoughts, to informally chat, to, to mention something interesting, a little tidbit if you find it, as well as the formal team meetings. So I think I think both keeping your head down and also informal and formal collaboration and, and discussion is, is a big part of it. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of Nick and Michael are both um, very well uh, known and highly respected fund managers. But do, do you have the sort of the freedom to sort of present ideas to them um, and perhaps challenge their way of thinking at all? Yes, yes, very much so. I actually remember years ago, Nick really emphasised to me that a big part of my job and everyone else that they've added to the team is to challenge their ideas, to bring a fresh perspective. He really meant that. I've I've always taken that seriously. Yeah. So he, whenever I chat to to Nick, he's um, he's he's every every question I ask, he would give a, um, a moment's pause and a lot of thought to everything. I, I, I'm just wondering, is he is he an easy person to convince, or, or perhaps to change his view at all, to win over um, you know, him and Michael? They always listen and always consider carefully. One one thing I'll say is that because our time horizons are so long, I mean, we look at stocks with a 20-year-plus timeline, ideally more, actually, ideally that Warren Buffett idea of holding something forever, everything that happens at Linzel Train is, is long in gestation. And that's that's deliberate. That's very deliberate. That means that ideas and changes can take years to implement. That's that's not a bad thing. So on, I noticed that um, you've done a lot of work looking at um, Prada and Experian in particular. How did you reach the conclusion that those two stocks were worth adding to, to one of the Linzel Train fund portfolios? Mm, well, maybe I'll talk about Prada first. So Prada was actually the result of one of those big projects I mentioned earlier. I spent about six months looking at, at luxury fashion companies. And the idea behind this piece of work was, was to try and figure out if, if digital marketing and e-commerce, the rise of this and the increasing adoption of this in the industry, whether that was going to be a, a positive or a negative for them. And if the whole space continued to be interesting for us, just to note, we, we have Burberry in the UK accounts and have for a very long time. So luxury fashion has always been quite an important idea. The work I did showed that luxury fashion is definitely still interesting. Um, Digital is likely to give these companies a, a big boost. Prada amongst them is a, a fantastic heritage Italian brand. It's been around since 1913. It's got reputation for quality, but also for being very fashion forward. All of these qualities made us feel it was a good candidate for inclusion into our global portfolio to get more exposure to, to luxury, to premium. Experian, like Prada's consistent with the idea of getting more luxury into the portfolio, Experian is consistent with another of, of our key investment ideas. We want to get more exposure to, to world-class tech companies and Within that bracket, especially those who own valuable data. So I mentioned earlier about everything being long in gestation here. 
actually the, the research process for experience started back in 2017. I completed a standalone piece of work on it then, flagged it up as an interesting company. And then in 2019, I revisited the name as part of a bigger piece of work. And that was to get to grips with the whole industry, the competitive landscape and, and what the other players in, in that industry are doing. That, that work was, was large and I, I visited TransUnion in Chicago. I had a, a call with Equifax also in the US and spoke again to Experian. All three of these credit bureaus have a fantastically strong business model. Experian's been going since 1968. Today, it's got a unique cache of consumer credit data, which is absolutely critical for its customers, mostly banks. And even more excitingly, it's, it's undergoing a transition from just selling data to selling data overlaid with decision tools, which makes it stickier, it makes it better for its customers, and, and ultimately, it, it helps to retain those customers. We think this, this change is going to be what, what will drive a really substantial am amount of growth over the next decade. Okay. Are those uh, Prada and Experian names that, um, that Nick and Michael might have looked at in the past and perhaps either dismissed or, or were they obviously on, the, on the, sort of their radar before you started to do your research work with them? I know that both... Both names had had been of interest. I know that um, that Nick and Michael were, were certainly aware of both of them as as potentially interesting. Prada actually only IPO'd in twenty eleven, so it's it's not been investable for that long. But it certainly was on on our on our watch list. And as I said, that that piece of work to try and get to grips with whether the whole space was was interesting and whether this digital revolution within luxury would would act as a catalyst for, for more growth in these names. That really highlighted that Prada has always been interesting, but perhaps was even more interesting than, than we'd anticipated. I know that Nick had, had looked at Experian, um, perhaps not in, in a huge amount of detail, but it certainly was, was on the list of interesting companies. But again, it was that that bigger piece of work, putting it into context with with the industry as a whole, that really highlighted how how interesting that was. Oh, brilliant. Well, so, what, what, I mean, just to, to to wrap up, what do you think are the most important things that you've learnt from Nick and Michael since you've worked for Linda Train? I'd probably pick two things. So maybe maybe first, I'd I'd pick the importance of tenacity holding on to positions, I guess what, what Nick calls running your winners. That's really difficult to do. The, the temptation to, to fiddle around the edges is, is there. But the ability of really good companies to, to compound and create value over time is, is absolutely phenomenal, especially when you're thinking in, in these very, very long time horizons. Holding on to positions allows you to, to really capture the full benefit of that. Maybe the second thing I pick actually follows on from, from what I said, that mention of really good companies. Maybe I'd pick how to identify a, a really good company. Actually, again, on that really long-term view, there aren't that many out there. 
we look for something unique, some piece of irreplaceable intellectual property, some must-have brand that's that's been delighting consumers for, for a long time, perhaps a piece of tech that customers can't do their business without, something that's endured for, for many years and will hopefully continue to endure and grow far into the future. Okay, well, brilliant. This is been absolutely fascinating um what you've been telling us about you know the life and the company and how you've progressed there thank you madeline for for coming on the podcast it's it's been brilliant to have you on thank you very much for having me it's been a pleasure great that's all we've got time for this week thank you for listening and we'll hope you'll join us again next week catch you then thanks see you later before you go please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.